The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Dream Team Tapes Season 2, Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. players selected for the honor of representing the United States in the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games are Kobe Bryant. I've been looking forward to this for a while, you know, to be in this position now to be able to you know, represent our country, man. It's special, it's special. LeBron James. We look for the opportunity to rekindle on that flame of being the best in the world. I guess the Redeem team is, is, is right. We the best team in the world. We the best team in the world. We put basketball, American basketball, where it's supposed to be, which is at the top. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea. Welcome to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, Episode 6, which we're calling, for reasons that will become clear, Redeem Team BK, before Kobe. I'm Jack McCallum. You've already heard about the magnificent organizational job done by Jerry Colangelo, the Godfather. You can hear that Godfather music cued in by our wonderful technical person, Mark Francis, the magnificent job that Jerry did in putting the team together and the choice of Mike Krzyzewski to coach this team. But this episode centers on the year 2006 when the team finally gets together, shows a lot of cohesion and teamwork, and promptly takes a nosedive in the 2006 World Championships in Japan. We'll be talking about that. But I want to begin with an off-the-court moment that occurred in 2006 during the NBA playoffs and before the Redeem team got together for its first practice. I've been doing this journalism thing for half a century now. There's countless games I remember, but there's also some great off-the-field, or in this case, off-the-court memories. 
I'm going to tell you about one because it ties in so nicely to the story of the 08 Redeem Team. But first, I want to introduce my co-host, J.A. Adandi, and wonder, do you have any of those moments, J.A., one of those like wonderful off-the-court moments that occurred around 2006? Well, yeah, very far from the court and very far from the NBA. In 2006, I actually skipped out midway through the NBA playoffs to go over to Germany to cover the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup. I got a chance to go to Dirk Nowitzki's hometown in Würzburg. I actually watched the sixth game of the finals from a bar that they kept open all night because of the time difference uh, and saw the, the Heat finish off the Mavericks. A lot of the locals were saying, nine, nine, every time Dirk would miss. So I was over there, so I actually kind of missed out on the 06 playoffs. It's a little bit of a blur for me, but I had a great time. I went to the Hofbrau House in Munich. I uh, got to see the Olympic Stadium with, where Jesse Owens' name is still embedded uh, all these decades after the 1936 Olympics. But those are my memories from 2006. It's weird. It's one of the few times that I wasn't actually at the NBA Finals. Well, mine comes from 2006. That Around that same time, while you were drinking beer uh, with all the Germans— I was actually at a dinner after the first round of the playoffs. I was working on a book about the uh, the Phoenix Suns. They had just beaten the Lakers, an amazing seven-game series. I guess every series that Kobe's in has a way of being amazing. But they went to dinner at this great pizza place in Phoenix. And at the dinner was Jerry Colangelo, the godfather. We don't have to cue the music, but Mike Krzyzewski and Mike D'Antoni. And it was the first time Colangelo had gathered the Redeem team coaches together to talk about what was going to happen later that summer when they finally practiced. What I remember, Jay, was the excitement of these guys. Shashevsky uh, just couldn't stop talking about D'Antoni's offense. And he would say, so you run the wings all the way to the corner, right? And then D'Antoni would talk about spacing. And then Colangelo would talk about some of the players that he had already lined up and how excited they were to see LeBron and D. Wade. And they weren't going to see Kobe. You're going to tell us uh, why. And then uh, D'Antoni would talk about international ball because he had been over in Italy for uh, 20 years. Meanwhile, the pizza, which is world class, by the way, Chris Bianco's pizza is recognized all around the country. The pizza's flying back and forth. And I'm the only one eating. Because these guys are just talking uh, basketball. And what struck me in that was the seeds of the Redeem team, that kind of enthusiasm. Here's these guys with like a collective 120 years of experience. And they were just really uh, you know, anxious to get going. And the other weird thing was you think about these timelines. What a weird process this is to get an Olympic basketball team together, Jay. Colangelo was named in April of 2005 to be the new head of USA Basketball. He finally selects Krzyzewski in October of 2005 and, you know, right at the beginning of that season. But the players, they're not even going to get together until July of 2006. You know, it's like asking somebody to the prom in uh, April of one year, and then we're not going to go until uh, June of the following year. A lot can go wrong. So one of the things you have to remember was how many players are involved in this kind of program. You can't just say, here's the 12 guys we want, because you never know what injuries, other circumstances are going to take. So all these different people are floating in and out of the Olympic program. Chauncey Billups, Shane Battier, Bruce Bowen, Joe Johnson, Brad Miller, and even Agent Zero, Gilbert Arenas. Um, Now you have 
you know, the guys you want, LeBron and D. Wade, and you certainly wanted Kobe. But for various reasons, Jay, Kobe was not uh, around for the 2016 for the initial practices. What was going on with him? Well, Kobe coming off what was his highest scoring season of his career, averaged 35 points per game that year, but his knee wasn't quite right. So he goes to get some of the scar tissue taken out of his knee. He felt like he didn't have full range of motion. And so he couldn't participate with anything the Team USA did that year. He was recovering from the knee surgery. He couldn't even participate when Nike had a uh, promotional event featuring FC Barcelona and Ronaldinho was there and, and all the FC Barcelona players and they wanted Kobe to kick around the soccer ball and play with them and he couldn't even do that. And uh, I actually talked to him that day and he sort of gave me the update on how he was doing and what he thought about all these rivalries that were brewing up. Remember Shaq had won the championship that year in Miami, his first post-Kobe championship and that infamous video, that rap that he made about Kobe. Uh, so I got Kobe's thoughts on that and about Dwayne Wade. But what was amazing was how quickly there was a sense of normalcy for him playing with Phil Jackson. And as we went into deep detail, uh, how things ended between Kobe and Phil in 2004, at that time, it seemed impossible to imagine that they could ever reunite. Phil had gone to management and asked for Kobe to be traded earlier in that season. Kobe really didn't put up a finger of resistance when Jerry Buss, the Lakers owner, said that he wanted to get rid of Phil Jackson at the end of the season. They famously split up. And then Rudy Tomjanovich is brought in to coach the Lakers. He lasts about a half a season when, citing health reasons, he, he steps down, turns the team over to assistant coach Frank Hamblin, who had been a longtime assistant for Phil Jackson. And somehow, the notion of Phil Jackson coming back to coach the team, a few people brought it up. And it doesn't get shot down. And when it first started circulating after Rudy Tomjanovich is gone, Tim Brown, who was a Laker, former Laker beat writer at the LA Times, he emailed Phil Jackson. And it turns out Phil was hanging out in Australia. Shout out to our producer, Mark Francis from Australia. He's hanging out with Luke Longley, the Australian center who played for him in Chicago. And he responds in the email, says, asks whether he's going to return. And Phil says, I'm mulling that over my mind. Luke and I are going for a swim this PM in the Indian Ocean. Oh, thanks for the update, Phil. So <laughs> that's an ultimate Phil meeting right there. The only guy, the only guy ever to be swimming in the Indian Ocean with his backup center. Yeah. <laughs> while while the fate of the Lakers, you know, the storied Lakers is is hanging in the air. Uh, a month later, Jerry Buss, the owner, meets with the media, and it's clear that the door is wide open for Phil to return. And that it looks like it's going to be on the terms that Phil would want, which was about $10 million a year. And uh, Buss specifically doesn't say it, but you add up the math and you connect the dots and it's clear where this is leading. And then, Jack, I'm driving home on Lincoln Boulevard after leaving the Laker practice facility. And I look in my rearview mirror and there's Phil Jackson behind me in his dark blue Porsche. And I think, oh, my God, I'm going to follow him Uh, wherever he goes. I'm going to follow him, pull out. And get the scoop. This is going to be the most talked about story in the NBA. Once I talked to Phil Jackson about coming back to the Lakers, and then he gave me the slip. He Somehow he was behind me, and he turned as I was going through the intersection. And I tried to go circle back and try see if I could catch up with him, and I lost him. But he was back for good. Soon enough, they announced that he was going to come back and coach the Lakers. And improbably, he and Kobe were reunited. Kobe signed off on it and went on to have, again, the highest scoring 
season of his career, including the fabled 81-point game. So this was Kobe as we'd never seen him before. And not only did he realize he could coexist with Phil Jackson, I think he also saw that Phil Jackson's triangle offense was better suited for him. Rudy Tomjanovich had Kobe in the middle of the court, and the help defenders could come from either side. Under the triangle, Kobe was off on the wing, and he had the whole side cleared off, so it was harder for the double team to come. And Kobe flourished, obviously had the best season of his career. But it became evident that he was only going to sign off on this if certain conditions were met. And Phil Jackson told us about the meeting that he had and the and the terms that were set for him to come back and coach the Lakers with Kobe Bryant. The Lakers made an overture, and uh, you know there are other teams in the market: New York, uh, Sacramento, Cleveland, some other teams that were, you know, kind of knocking at the door and of interest. But I always said I have to talk to Kobe first before I, I, you know, would even think about coming back. So we talked, and I just said, you know, what's the deal? I, are you are you willing to come back and play uh, and team up together with me in this kind of a, a venture? And he said, yeah, but let's just keep everything between us. I know you a lot of times you use the press to talk uh, and use motivation by using the press to send a message to players. Let's just keep it between us. And uh, I said, okay, I can do that. So we came back and uh, literally formed a very strong bond. I was giving him books about leadership and uh, there's something I talked to him about previously uh, as, as he grew up through the game about his leadership and about being a guy that, you know, would be able to eat last and let his, uh, his teammates go to the banquet table first, so to speak. And, you know, he was picking up on that idea, but it was always, it was always difficult for Kobe to, to put others in, in, in front of himself. And uh, we had to have a number of talks during the course of those next two years. But, you know, it ended up we were usually sitting on the plane across from each other and spending time talking about uh, our the connection or the team or what was needed to do to be the best we could be. And uh, I really honored that. And, Jack, he did hold to that. So right before what turned out to be the last game Phil Jackson coached in the 2011 playoffs, I had noticed that he'd never badmouthed Kobe in the press, which was very unusual for Phil. And I said, did you have a deal with Kobe that you wouldn't talk about him in the media? And he admitted, yeah, he did. And uh, he held to that. He didn't talk bad about Kobe publicly that whole second run that they had together. That Kobe in that 05-06 season was just crazy. It was Kobe unleashed. Yeah, he was on another planet. And I went out to L.A. to do a story on uh, the scoring race because it really wasn't a race. We knew Kobe was going to win, but Iverson was coming into town. And the idea of the story was this kind of two guys that just score the freaking ball. And we don't care, you know? So I talked to Kobe about it, and Kobe's kind of smirking at me. You know the Kobe smirk. Oh, oh, this is a race now, huh? Is that what it is? Well, he gets in there on Friday night, goes for 48 against Iverson. The next night, he's playing against the Clippers, and he's got uh, 10 points at halftime. And I'm thinking, I got this story done. You know, I'm staying at a hotel. They closed down the the restaurant early. I got this story done. I can sneak out of here. You know, Kobe's just mailing this one in. As I go out, start to go out the door of the stable center, Kobe starts going nuts. He gets 40 
in the second half <laughs> and ends up with 50. I come back into the uh, into the Staples Center, and someone who shall remain nameless, although it's Rick Buecher, Buecher tells Kobe later, hey, you know, Jack left, you know, before you, before you finished. And Kobe was just, he so enjoyed this moment. I mean, he was smirking about, oh, uh, yeah, oh, this is a race. Oh, I'm really not thinking about that. And then he gets out and goes for 48 and 50 into uh, in consecutive nights. I mean, he was just, he was just a machine. But Mike Krzyzewski didn't have him in the summer of 06. And one of the guys that uh, he's really counting on, you know, obviously is LeBron. We're going to talk about him. But one of the other guys you mentioned before, and that is D. Wade. The guy Flash, as he was known then, or the guy Mike Krzyzewski calls. I call him Rocket Man. He just came in and exploded offensively and defensively. He was remarkable, really, on that team. You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be back in a minute. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So talk a little bit about Wade that season, Jay, and the conversations we've had off Zoom. I admit it, he caught me a little by surprise with that memorable 2003 draft. I guess I saw him as a little bit positionless because although his size translated, obviously, to a guard, it didn't seem like he was a shooter at all. You know, I can't picture Dwayne having this knockdown jump shot like most shooting guards would have, but you were a little bit higher on his game when he came into the league. Yeah, I love the fact that he had taken Marquette to the Final Four, and I I put a big premium on college success and what you do in the NCAA tournament. I know a lot of talent evaluators and general managers in the NBA, their their work is done a lot of times. By the time they get to March, they're not going to be swayed by a few games here or there. But to me, if you can succeed under that pressure and under uh, – that situation where all the lights and attention are on you, the best that there is at your level, that means something to me. And most great players in the NBA had great success in the NCAA tournament, at least up until the the high school or the one-and-done era of the last 20 or so years. And Wade was one of those guys who we maybe hadn't heard of him much before the tournament, 
but we certainly heard of him after the tournament. And then within a couple years in the NBA, after Michael Jordan had abdicated the, the title of, of best shooting guard or best perimeter player, and it was still a big man dominated Shaq and and uh, Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett were the focal points of the league, I'd say. But there was a battle for the best perimeter player. And Wade had definitely inserted himself in that conversation. During the 2005 playoffs, I went down and I actually talked to Eddie, Eddie Jones, who was on, the, on Miami at that point, uh, but had played with Kobe since Kobe's rookie year in L.A. And I asked him to compare the two, and he started squirming, and he said he really couldn't pick between the two of them. And then in 2006, of course, Wade wins the NBA Finals and is the Finals MVP. And he's, uh, you know, he's, he's up there. It's a legit conversation that we're having. So that's sort of the backdrop as we get into that. Wade had a stat where only he and Larry Bird were the only players to put up, I think the thresholds were like average, 25 points, eight rebounds, seven assists, and shoot better than 50%. And not one, but two series in the same postseason. And some of the other guys who had done it in a single series were like Oscar Robertson and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. So Wade's in that all-time company with the way he's playing, and he's certainly in the conversation for best perimeter player with Kobe at that moment. He, he almost created in the 2006 finals, Jay, which I covered, he almost created this new position. It was like not shooting guard. He was like slashing guard. They, got, they were down 2-0 to the Mavericks. Game three, Wade gets 42 points. Game four, he gets 43. Game six, closeout, he gets 36. And the amazing thing was the number of free throws. He shot 25 in that game five, the exact total shot by the Mavericks. You can imagine what Mark Cuban was like uh, after that. (laughs) The next game, the closeout game, he shoots 21 free throws, which was only two fewer than the Mavs, who, you know, kind of depend a little bit on Dirks. It was explicable. But uh, Mark Cuban was just going insane. But apoplectic. I, yeah. Oh my God. But I, I have I've honestly rarely seen maybe a couple of Jordans. I've rarely seen a championship series where you could say one guy really did it. Shaq was on that team, but he was smart enough by then. If Dwayne has gone to the basket, get the hell out of the lane because he's going to get it there, or he's going to uh, you know, or he's going to get fouled. And, and that was Dwayne Wade around this time. Now, you know, he's coming in also, but there's also LeBron there. And LeBron's coming off a monster season, like 31 points, seven rebounds, six and a half assists. He's going to be a leader. And while establishing exact team chemistry isn't possible since Kobe isn't there, it's kind of like planning a dinner party when you don't have the entree uh, there yet to bring in some food network uh you know, action to it, you can at least start to form. LeBron was always a team guy. You know, Le- LeBron is going to come in and uh, and be a team guy. And and that, that forge, they started to forge a very tight team. We're going to talk in the next episode about how that potentially could have changed when Kobe came in. But Craig Miller, who has been the uh, USA Basketball's head of public relations since before the Dream Team, he reflected on how really tight that team seemed to be, the Redeem team seemed to be, right from the beginning. I think that in all my Olympic experiences from 92 to 2016, it would rival the 92 Dream Team. 
and, it, and, it, and they're very different because the 92 Dream Team didn't have a lot of guys that knew each other really well. And uh, they became close. But the, the 2018, you know, D-Wade, LeBron, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Bosh, they were already friends. Um, and there's others. I, I'm probably missing a few that I'm not thinking of. But the bonding of that team just from the start, and part of it, again, was, you know, they practiced together in 2006 for the most part. You had the same core group. 2007, you had eight of the players that would go on to the Olympics were on the 2017. So you had a really, really tight team that liked each other. And, you know, sometimes teams gel differently. There's other teams that I remember that were very successful, but they didn't have maybe the chemistry. So, Jay, everybody's happy. With or without Kobe, we're all together. It's on to Japan, to the World Championship, where we're going to kick ass, but, well, not so fast. We're going to get to the game in a minute. But there's something going on around the league uh, around this time, Jay, and that is the adoption of the dress code before the 05-06 season, and it plugs in to something that happened at these world championships in Japan. I was around the Suns at that time, and I remember Mike D'Antoni making a joke about Steve Nash. And his joke about Steve was, Steve is going to be in violation even when he's under compliance, meaning that Steve's jean and t-shirt kind of punk rock look, you know, really should be against the spirit of the dress code. But I don't think the dress code was put in for people like uh, Steve Nash. It definitely wasn't aimed at the Steve Nashes of the league. It was more about the Allen Iversons and trying to curtail the impact of the Allen Iverson and what he represented, which was really the hip-hop influence and the hip-hop generation taking over the NBA. And it really was about the NBA's, I'd say their last-ditch efforts to appeal to the the white baby boomer generation and that element of the fan base and and the corporate sponsors of the league who were uncomfortable with the hip hop element and and you mentioned that it comes into play in the in the 06 uh international competition but also like this entire redeem team and this entire podcast has some roots in 2004 in that 2004 olympic team and reportedly there was a dinner the washington post wrote about this in 2004, the, the Serbian national team invited Team USA to a dinner, and the Serbian players all show up, and they're wearing these matching sport coats. And the Americans roll in, and they've got baggy jeans and sweats and you know, loose clothing, clothes hanging all off them. And word got back to David Stern, the NBA commissioner in New York, and he was not happy at all. And this had been building, this sense had been building for a while that, okay, we need to do something about the image of our players and how they're presented because we're long past the era of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen showing up to games in immaculately tailored suits. Guys are dressing the way their generation is dressing now, uh, the way the hip-hop generation is dressing, and the league thought it was a bad look. So they put in the dress code, formalize things a little bit. Of course, there's there's all this backlash because of, of the racial undertones to this story. But I was actually okay with it. I called John Thompson, the Georgetown coach, who used to make Allen Iverson wear a coat and tie to games and whenever that team traveled, when Iverson was at Georgetown. And John's message that he thought the players should learn is that, look, somebody's always in charge. And it ain't always you. (laughs) And so sometimes you got to get in line and do what the boss tells you to. 
And for me, it was about not the players and the image that they projected, but the impact they could have on young young African-Americans who were going to be entering the job market and didn't have the luxury of dressing however they wanted if they wanted to be employed. But as, as I recall, Jay, you were a suit, you were a wear a suit to the game guy, right? As I recall? Definitely. I would wear suits. And you know, that was sort of a, a black sports writer thing. Going back to my early days and seeing the way that uh, Michael Wilbon dressed or, or the black sports writers that covered the New York Knicks, they were always well-dressed. And so that's what I adopted. Uh, but also from my early internships, I'd been told, hey, wear a tie. If you're a young black male trying to get into this business, you need to look the part. Wear a tie. And so even though the players fought back about it, and yes, there were racial undertones to this, and it was about trying to satisfy one aspect of the fan base that they were probably in the process of losing anyway. Uh, But to me, the unintended education, that was John Thompson's phrase, the unintended education uh, could benefit young people who are watching this and would say, you know what, this is the way you stress when you're going to work. Because for the young people that weren't going to make it to the NBA, that was the way they had to dress if they wanted to get a job and, and be employed in corporate America. Meanwhile, I, I remember an all-star weekend where I was at the, the NBA party and I had on a sport coat, but underneath I had on a T-shirt, which I thought was like appropriate dress T-shirt. You know what I mean? One of those classy silk T-shirt, maybe. Yeah, I, I guess. You know, I thought I was rocking it pretty well. I swear this is true that I, I took one of my friends to it and he still brings it up to this day. I'm walking through the party, and from across the room, Stern goes, David Stern goes, McCallum, nice T-shirt. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I don't know, I just thought I was kind of a, uh, I just thought I was kind of a happening guy. But, but anyway, this whole collision of dress code and the new generation led to a bit of a showdown during the World Championships in Japan when old school Jerry Colangelo, who... I'll tell you what, Jay, Jerry is never caught. I'm not sure I've ever seen Jerry without at least a sport coat on. You know, never mind, uh, usually even has a tie. And this caused uh, an interesting collision. Here's Colangelo talking about it, the Godfather. I had one rule. No headphones on your head in, in, uh, in public. And no strapped, you know, the strapped undershirts. None of that. You know, you have to look appropriate when you're out in public. So we're in Sapporo, Japan. And that was the site of the preliminary round. And I'm there with the coaching staff. And here comes Dwayne Wade, Carmelo, and LeBron with um, headphones. And they're the strap undershirts that we didn't want. And so I was pretty upset about that because that was the direct slap in the face. So later that night, back at the hotel, we had um, we had a meeting, and um, you know the three players, Coach K and myself. You know that that was it. That was an insult. That shows a lack of respect because as soon as they walked into the building with the headphones on and dressed the way they were, a couple hundred media turned around and, you know, it was going to be all over the the world. And that's not what I wanted. You know, I was trying to stay away from that kind of thing. 
So at the meeting, um, you know, they're they're saying to me, oh, you know, you're relaxed, cool, you know, we're, you know, it's not a big deal. No, I said, no, it is a big deal. When I say we're going to have one rule, and that's the rule, and some people choose to break it, you don't think that's a big thing? I said, it's a big thing. I said, now let me ask you a question, Dwayne. Do you want me to 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 do put some rules in like you have down in Miami under Pat Riley? Oh no no no, you didn't want that. And Carmelo had the same kind of response. And Lebr I said, and then LeBron in Cleveland? Come on, give me a break. So we have a rule. It's not asking too much, and you guys let me down. Everybody apologized. That was the end of it. I never had another problem. You're listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. We'll be back in a minute. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Team USA did have a problem on the court in the semifinals of the tournament when they were playing Greece. And Greece played a fantastic game. The U.S. was mediocre at best. Team USA missed 14 of 34 free throws. They made only 9 of the 23 three-point shots, whereas Greece made 31 of 44 shots over the last three periods. At one point, the lead was up to 14. U.S. got it down to 5. Greece come down, hits a three-pointer, and that was basically it. And they just they killed the U.S., particularly in the third quarter. They kept running the pick and roll, 
And the U.S. just looked helpless defensively against it. They ran it over and over again. And here's Chris Boss describing that helpless feeling. It was so embarrassing losing to Greece. And hats off to them. They played a great game. They ran one play to close out the game. And as a player, sometimes you get into this situation to where it's like, where is it's 10 of them? Where are they coming from? We got to stop the bleeding. You know what I mean? And we were just behind in everything that we did. You can't be in between going, you know, oh, I'm going to trap, but I'm up, but I'm back. You know, you have to make a decision. And after getting used to seeing a lot of pick and rolls, I said, yo, let me be. I remember Coach K said something to me one time. He probably doesn't even remember, but he was like, man, you were on the screen and roll. Your arms were so long, man. Oh, I said, okay, that's how I'm going to play. <laughs> so because of that game, the U.S. changed its defensive strategy. And Bosch, as we're going to see, became increasingly important. But in retrospect, though, as depressing as the loss was, maybe it was crucial, as Mike D'Antoni says. Yeah, it was a big deal. And uh, But we knew that it was going to be hard. I mean, there, you know, every game wasn't like, it's not like you're just going to win by 40. When you play a 40-minute game with a three-point line that close, um, that's what makes it exciting. Anything can happen. You know, a 48-minute game and you, uh, you know, you got a longer three, uh, it's a little bit the talent really at the end of the game kind of comes out and the best team, best talented team wins. But when you're, you're in a sprint like that and uh, some team could get hot and uh, that's what Greece did to us. You know, we probably underestimated how they just carved us up with a pick and roll. And that was one thing that we had to solve in 2008. Um, but it was a, a little bit of a wake-up call. So it might be cliche, but it was a wake-up call, and it, it was a memorable moment. And if you look around the internet, there's images of Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James walking off the court dejectedly while you see the Greeks gathered in a circle, happily celebrating uh, their victory while the Americans slink off in defeat. And then Carmelo actually stuck around a little bit longer and, and just kind of biting his lip and looking around in the stands. And he shared with us his memories of what that moment was like for him. I'm standing on the court after the game. LeBron is like, we both standing on the court. And I just remember like looking up and looking in the stands and just seeing the crowd going crazy and things being thrown on the court. And just, it, was a, it wasn't even a kid to go a medal game. So, but we was the gold medal. We was the gold medal game for them. So I remember standing on the court and I look, we, we looked at each other, me and Brian, it was just like, yo, we got to be back. We'd, I never, I, we'd never want to feel to have this feeling ever again. And the Godfather remember too. And so we lose the game. But it, it kind of made us more committed, if, if there's such a way to be more committed. Kochyshevsky came off the floor, met, met me eyeball to eyeball, and said, I, I'm sorry, I apologize. Hey, it's not your fault. But you know what? We're, this is going to make us even more committed to what needs to be done. I refused to look at the replay of that game. I just did. A year later, in 07, I'm on a plane going to China to, in terms of preparation for 08. And Sean Ford had a copy of the, uh, the game. And he knew I hadn't watched it. He says, do you want to watch it? I said, no, I don't want to watch it. I remember everything. I don't need to watch it. 
it's a long flight. So eventually I watched it and I was just as upset after watching it as I was when it happened originally. But it made a point and we were all refocused, recommitted, and I think it helped us tremendously. And Mike Krzyzewski had a couple takeaways from this loss. The first was a lesson in international etiquette, let's say, or protocol. And Jack, I don't know if you've experienced this, but for example, college basketball coaches, if they're playing a non-conference opponent or if they're playing an NCAA tournament, and I think we see this sometimes in international basketball as well, but what they'll do is because they don't want to confuse their players, when they're going through the scouting reports or watching film, they'll just refer to the opposing players by numbers because they don't need to clutter the minds of their players and have them thinking who's who and trying to learn all these different names, many in foreign languages. So rather than confuse them, they'll just use a number and say, number 22 likes to shoot from the left corner or you know, switch when we've got 13 and 15 on the pick and roll. So they'll just go over it like that. And Krzyzewski was following that that typical behavior. And so after the loss to Greece, when he's meeting with the media in the press conference, he's just referring to the players by their numbers. And the international media in particular, they don't operate that way. And they found it incredibly disrespectful for the United States coach to not actually use the names of the Greek players who just beaten his teams. So Krzyzewski kind of got beaten up over that. So he learned his lesson and going forward when whenever Team USA was in international competition, he made sure that he used the names of players when he was talking about the other team. But the more important takeaway for him was learning and being reminded that the team and the players felt this way, that they would win together or lose together. And the best part for Coach K was that this was not something that he had to instill. He saw them take ownership of that himself. So that was one of the things that he took away from that 2006 loss. It took us losing in 2006 to learn. And But I'll tell you one thing from that, I can remember after we lost to Greece, sitting uh, at the press table and their coach and a player and I'm with Carmelo. And they asked the, the losing player first. And Carmelo set the tone for what proved to be one of our foundation blocks for the Redeem team, and that was collective responsibility. He gave credit to the Greek team, no excuses. And for the next few months, there was never any finger pointing uh, by anybody. And I can remember getting together to qualify and 2007, and I told them uh, how proud I was of them about collective responsibility. And I said, one of our goals should be now, let's be collectively responsible for winning. In other words, we win and we lose together. That's collective responsibility. Let's just win together and be collectively responsible. Okay, the game is over. 2006 summer has ended. On a bummer. But a big change is about to come, Jay. Can you hear it? Can you hear the noise? Can you hear somebody coming? They're sending in the seals, man. This is real. You know, uh, Kobe is playing. Kobe is here. You know, it's... <laughs> and, you know, you have to, even though you play against him, he, he has an aura. So when, you know, he walked in the room, you're, you know, everything stops. 
I'm Jack McCallum. And I'm J.A. Adande. Thanks for listening to Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team. And remember, season one of the Dream Team tapes, which talks about the Dream Team in Barcelona, is still available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Dream Team Tapes Season 2, Kobe, LeBron, and the Redeem Team, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This season is written and hosted by me, Jack McCallum, and J.A. Adande. Executive Producer Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcasts and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Our Editorial Director is John Tuttle. Supervising Producer Brian Murphy. Legal Producer Freddie Overstegen. Editing, Mixing, and Sound Design by Mark Francis. Verna Fields is our Technical Producer, and our Director of Marketing and Business Development is Jacob Bronstein. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.